Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and today I'm going to continue my discussion of the Orient of the Mind and talk about psychoanalysis in Japan. So far, we've focused primarily then on identifying differences in a kind of Oriental discourse that in the dialectic, showing how Japanese have found themselves on one end of the discourse and Western psychoanalysis on the other. Before I come to Takeo Doi, I wanted to do this uh, one more talk. Because really to understand, I think, what's happening in psychoanalysis in general, we have to understand that the divide that we see there in Oriental studies, we need to complicate that one more time, and that is that at a deep level, what is taking place between Freud's conception of the world and his Japanese followers' understanding is a deep level of agreement. I think that what's happening here with Freud, you'll see the same thing happening in Hegel. In fact, I would just see psychoanalysis as a discourse that's given rise to a Hegelian kind of psychological understanding. In some way, I picture that when a discourse goes to this deeper level, that we're hitting upon, as obviously here, the the death drive, but then in some way that everyone converges on dealing with and understanding death in some way as absolute. And so the denigration, you know, Freud's denigration of Japan was tolerated, I think, because at a deeper level, what Japanese psychoanalysts and researchers saw was a profound agreement between what Freud was doing and the way that their own sensibility in Buddhism, Japanese religion, and just maybe Japaneseness or Nihonjin Ron, that they did converge. And so the theme of death and dealing in death is primary dealing in death, I believe points to the deep logic that's guiding human discourse. That is, identity through difference, as in Hegel, reduces to a sameness, demonstrable in the convergence in themes of death. Freud himself, in addition to training Japan's foremost psychoanalysts, carried on correspondence with Japanese psychoanalysts. He contributed articles to the journal, the Japanese psychoanalytic journal Seishin Bunseki, and he was eager to establish an international influence. He was concerned at several points that his main followers were Jewish, and he was eager to have a non-Jewish or Gentile following. And maybe the the Japanese were superb Gentiles. They fit the bill. And so he did accommodate Kosawa and others and Japanese sensibilities, encouraged in the psychoanalysis in Japan. So in addition to the two psychoanalytic societies, Japanese established a Freud Institute for Psychoanalytic Study. And maybe as a country, as a nation, proved to be some of his earliest and most devout followers. And so Japanese... Though they reversed many of his notions, there was at a deeper level a large measure of correspondence. And this is what I want to talk about. Even the Japanese psychoanalysts in both the pre- and post-war period saw a direct correspondence between what Freud was doing and Buddhism. And, and of course, Freud himself saw this. One analyst uh, prior to the outbreak of World War II, about 18 months before, he said that he predicted its success in, quote, he said, psychoanalysis corresponds on certain points to Buddhism 
especially in the Nirvana principle, and shares also some of the world viewpoints of Taoism, especially the high esteem for a deep, unconscious, psychological life. It is therefore expected to have a very promising future in Japan and in the Orient at large. And so we've talked about the Nirvana principle, a fusion of Eros and Thanatos, which of course in a Japanese context was coincided with the Zen Buddhist understanding, and the extinction of individualism, Nirvana, you know, the ultimate reality, there's a convergence upon what that might be, and of course Thanatos is going to emerge as primary in both Freud, later Freud, and in Japanese uh, psychoanalysis. And so outside of, you know, what is happening in a Lacanian psychoanalysis, or in Zizek, or in certain streams of French psychoanalysis, there is a privileging of the death drive. But of course, this privileging of the death drive takes on a different air in the Japanese context, because the entire discourse has been flipped on its head. And so, as Kosho Fukuda says, Freud pointed out that religion has a compulsive neurotic phase and an erotic phase, but he did not study Buddhism. If he had lived longer and become familiar with Buddhism, his opinion on religion would have changed. The relationship between the unconscious theory and Buddhism should occupy a more important place in the psychology of religion. Maloney, who I've quoted before, thought this emphasis on the Nirvana principle was just a, an attempt to syncretize Japanese religion and psychoanalysis. But I think what Maloney did not see is that psychoanalysis was itself developing in a kind of Eastern direction. By 1957, Western analysts I really had come around to Fukuda's position, and that was when in, uh, 50 analysts gathered in Mexico City, and the Japanese Zen teacher D.T. Suzuki came and instructed them in Eastern mystic understanding. And so they had discovered what Japanese analysts had perceived from the beginning. Like Buddhism, Freud's system was centered as much on death, natural forces, as upon life and cognitive apprehension. And in fact, cognition is going to take second place, which is an odd thing, in a Western scientific rational discourse. And so the Japanese program of disindividualization really wasn't reading anything into Freud, contrary to Maloney. Rather, it was Western individualism that would not survive a truly Freudian reading. Freud himself, this comes out, his basic aim was to find in the microcosm of the individual the entire macrocosm of creation. Self-study and a study of the world could be correlated, he says, because our mental apparatus is itself a constituent part of that world which we are to investigate. And so as with Japanese thought, Freud considered the human mind another object to be studied, to be studied along with and in its natural setting. And so all of life, including the life of the mind, is derived, is a derivative of nature, of natural instinct. And so in the Freudian scheme, thought is secondary. 
not primary, and its subject, like neuroses, to an accident, as in Buddhism, to fate or karma or frustrated instinct. And so the early stages of mental development reflected a natural identity between the world and the self. And originally, as Freud says, the ego includes everything. Later, it detaches from itself the external world. But the earlier identity reflects then this natural, you know, this is the narcissistic imagination from which intellect emerges and which it will once again merge into. And so as in Buddhism, Hinduism, even in Empedocles, Freud was fascinated with a philosophical understanding. He, he patterned his own thought after Empedocles. The life force is working itself out then in these manifestations. But the interlude of life, defined by the pleasure principle, and he's going to think of the pleasure principle as subject then to the, the death instinct, is only temporary before there is a return to the equilibrium of death. Life is simply the absence of perfect equilibrium of the instincts. And the death instinct then is the vision of that perfection. Thanatos and not Eros is the superior force, as it's in death that the instincts have achieved the end of their change. So the forces bringing about the change in the individual are the localized version of cosmic forces witnessed in astronomy and geology and the initial emergence of life out of water into land, the glacial period, the relation between sun and earth or the relationships of the heavenly bodies in the remote past. These are all events recorded in the instinctive processes driving human development. The con conservative organic instincts have been have absorbed every one of these enforced alterations in the course of life and have stored them for repetition. And of course, repetition is in the picture that one repeats. In a sense, repetition is all we have access to, and thus they represent the delusive appearances of forces striving after change and progress. I'm quoting Freud here. They are merely endeavoring to reach an old goal, death, by ways both old and new. And so he sums this up. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, or Atman is Brahman, on a grand scale reflected here in the human mind. And so it was not a Japanese that really develops this. Uh, Sander Ferenzi, he proposed the most compelling instinct, really was to crawl back into the womb. And this is what's taking place in coitus. You know, on withdrawal, the, that this recapitulates the emergence of life from, you know, the penis is representative of the fish. The woman is the primal sea emerging from water. Freud may have disapproved of this notion of the eternal return, but it's actually Freud that uh, Ferenczi is, is reduplicating. And so Freud thought the organism strives toward equilibrium and the absence of uh, irritability, striving to return through the circle of life. And the motive then in this drive to return is the cosmic conflict, the, the two primal forces, Eros and Thanatos, which is the cosmic, it explains the cosmic conflict, but Freud sees it then as explanation of the personal conflict. And of course, later in Lacanian psychoanalysis, the he will reduce all of this down to, to language. The pleasure principle Freud realized in his old age 
was itself in conflict and ultimately subject in the individual to the more basic drive of the inorganic world of death. And so libido is just the local and changing manifestation of an immutable eros. It is the life force, but this life force is in conflict with the death instinct, which comes out in human violence and aggression, and the impurities of eros producing libido and change arise then from the mixture with thanatos. And so these polarities, thanatos and eros, are mediated first through society, they're mediated in the psyche itself, and this is the very thing that produces personality. Slavoj Zizek, you know, Jacques Lacan, they're going to get this and recognize that personality really cannot be identified with any one of the registers, but actually personality arises at the edges of these registers in the conflict. If you remove the conflict, you remove the violence, you remove the agonizing struggle, you do not have a person. This is why Freud then will begin to question whether there really is a cure. Analysis terminable or interminable, he asks at one point, and really concludes that it must be interminable. There is no cure. You just have to stay in analysis or you're sick for your entire duration of life. And so in Individual psychology and all of this is really part of a social psychology. The individual and the society intermixing in Freud is, he's giving up, notice here, on the notion of an individual ego as he delves into an understanding of the death instinct. The personality is society's and nature's compromise, but a temporary one that must work itself out in death. Freud had imagined psychoanalysis as the cure for religion, and of course he held himself aloof from those of his followers who would fuse religion, which many of them did, Japanese disciples, but also Carl Jung and Eric Fromm and others all recognized that what Freud was doing verged on religion. Eastern religion and psychotherapy have an uncanny similarity, and Buddhism is really kind itself. It has therapeutic goals, and psychotherapy really has sort of Buddhist goals. According to Fromm, Freudian psychology, like Eastern religion, is attempting to go beyond and behind conscious thought to bring about a reunification of self and other that will bring about an end to suffering with the experience of, that separateness creates. And so he says the central question is, how can we find union with ourselves, with our fellow man, with nature? Or if you put it in a Buddhist understanding, how can we drop one's ego? Really, that's Freud's question. How can one cease chasing after the preservation and the aggrandizement of the ego? So Jung and Freud made the same sort of reversal that we see in Japan in finding the highest wisdom is really in the id, not in the ego. And this had really been implicit in Freud's earlier thought and comes out explicitly with his later emphasis on the death instinct. And so in this, conscious thought is a fiction arising from the unconscious. To understand that fiction would in some way mean to go beyond it. Consciousness, I'm quoting as such then, is nothing desirable. And language, the stuff of thought, is the logic of consciousness. It determines how we experience and which experiences penetrate to our awareness. And this gets at, you know, Freud's 
theory of ambivalence that love really hides hate like the Buddhist cones. It turns consciousness against itself and creates a paradoxical use of language in an attempt to get beyond language. A lot of this sounds a lot very similar to Hegel, you know, that in a Hegelian understanding, there is a deep appreciation almost for a metaphysical understanding of the function of language, that language is not just taken to be some sort of convention. And this is Freud's whole notion of dream analysis and focus on the symbolic. I think that French psychoanalysis is just uh, uh, recognizing what Freud was coming to. And so the thinking person, Freud says, is the alienated person. He is not participating in the experience which he believes is his. His thought is not his own. Consciousness must be made to experience the unconscious and to function the same way as the unconscious. According to Fromm, discovering one's unconscious is precisely not an intellectual act, but an affective experience, which can hardly be put into words, if at all. And this affective experiential knowledge, it transcends rationalism. It's prior to rationalism. It transcends the subject-object split inherent in rationalism and in the Western view of self. So as in Zen, final awareness, satori, is not merely that of the head, but of the whole person, and not as object But all is experienced as subject in the same way that the infant experiences it, quoting from. And so the opposite of the alienated, distorted, parataxic, false thinking experience is the immediate, direct, total grasp of the world which we see in the infant and child before education sets in. So the analytic and Buddhist solution is to reach once again this intermediate, undistorted grasp of reality found in the child. So remember our early Japanese psychoanalysts were already seeing this element of a kind of dissolution of the ego, of an understanding prior to thought, of an overcoming of rationalism. And what we're seeing in psychoanalysis then in the immediate aftermath of Freud is that they too then are turning to this understanding that psychoanalysis, as Fromm says, cannot be formulated in thought. It starts not in our brain, to use a Japanese image, in our belly, and I'm quoting from. So upon reaching maturity, the affective contamination of intellection has been cleansed away as in a child. There is return to the unreflected reality of experience. And so in this cosmic consciousness, which Fromm is describing, he feels he's being true to Freud, that it's true to Freud's development of the death instinct and the broadening notion and understanding of the id and what this would mean really in Freud's original aim to make unconscious conscious. And so if one pursues the aim of the full recovery of the unconscious, it's not restricted to the instinct nor limited to sectors of experience, but to the total experience of the total man. The aim becomes that of overcoming alienation and of the subject-object split, that in a direct perception of the world without thought. Then the uncovering of the unconscious means the overcoming of the affective contamination of thought. It means the 
de-repression, the abolition of the split within myself. All of this from Fromm. And so Fromm felt that Freud himself had realized that he had not gone far enough. And Zen Buddhism really takes analysis terminable or interminable to its end. It presents the rigors of a cure as a life course. Nothing short of a deconversion from Western thought and a turn to the East is adequate in the Freudian cure, at least in Fromm's depiction of it. And so Fromm's turn to Buddhism, really it's a turn reflected across the spectrum. He's really a forerunner of what's going to take place in Western thought from theology to history. And it's going to miss the unflinching nihilism of the death instinct. And so a psychoanalysis based on the Nirvana principle, as Japanese psychoanalysis came to be, involves itself in the contradiction of making Thanatos a positive goal and a return then to oneness is a fulfillment really of death, the death drive. None of this is straightforward because in Nirvana, in Buddhism, in the Nirvana principle, death becomes immortality. Who is not subject to death? Only the dead. The dead cannot die. They are immortal in that sense. To deny the importance of death is not to understand the death instinct. In a sense, to not recognize what death actually is, is really Freud's followers, like Fromm, like his Japanese followers, and I'm suspicious of Zizek and Lacan, seem to do this consciously. Lacan and Zizek both talk about a primordial deception, a primordial lie, that to be held under the death instinct, or to not recognize death for what it is, to mistake death for life, that is the death drive. And so the death instinct denies separation, it denies the reality of the obstacles that block complete union. It denies the reality of death itself, as to acknowledge death would be to assign reality to life and not death. And so it is the illusion of an eternal oneness, not the oneness of separate entities, but really an amorphous unity that denies the reality of the self, as in nirvana. And so a psychology founded upon this notion of the nirvana principle or the two drives merged, it's doing away with individual psychology and is itself an obstacle whose separate reality must be denied you know, in, in an individual psychology. The more the ego denies itself in a strange way, though, the more its existence is confirmed. The greater the desire to do away with desire, the more desire increases. What is the death drive? The death drive is the drive to get rid of the death drive. That is, you're caught in this cage, in this eternal struggle against the neurosis that really comes to be life itself. It's greater than any neurosis. You could level this at Freud's entire system, but the sickness is then its own cure. In Nietzsche's words, logic curls about itself and bites its own tail. Psychoanalysis opened up the gap in Western rationalism and reinforced the idea that the mind is split against itself. It's in this time psychoanalysis is coming into popularity that you get Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you get Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf. 
what is being pictured is that the Wolfman is really one of a series of monsters in splits, reflective then of the herald of the modern implosion of the self, in which we're all turned in an antagonistic struggle with the self, and that's all we have, all Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And so it was a problem inherent to psychoanalysis, but also inherent to the enlightenment notion of self. Psychic reality and perception of that reality entails a split. And it's a split that would ensure, with the Japanese import of Western knowledge, the emphasis would fall on overcoming the split, dissolving the ego, merging with Mother Earth, returning to death. This is, I'm afraid, the dark picture that Freud himself would end his life with. As he suffered from cancer, mouth cancer, as he lost his favorite daughter, he saw the overwhelming violence of humankind. I think Freud determines that the death drive, in fact, is both the sickness and the inevitable force that one has to give in to. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.